0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Elisaveta Reichlina, and I'm a host of the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies channel. Today, we're with Dr. Anna Schur, professor of English at Keene State College, to discuss her book, The Letters and the Law, Legal and Literary Culture in Late Imperial Russia. Published by Northwestern University Press in 2022. Dr. Scher's work includes her 2012 book, Wages of Evil Dostoevsky and Punishment, also published with Northwestern University Press, which examined how debates on penal theory influenced Fyodor Dostoevsky's thinking about punishment and about mercy. Her many articles and book chapters have examined the thought and writings of Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and Trigenyev, among others. Her most recent articles have explored Jewish identity and Soviet subjectivity at the trial of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, published in 2018, and Ivan Bunyan and the Courtroom Narrative, published in 2022. I'm delighted to be speaking with her today. Anna, welcome. Glad to have you on the NBN podcast. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's nice to be with you. I'm delighted to have you with us today. Uh, So all of your work is fascinating because it operates at the intersection of literary analysis, history, philosophy, criminology, uh, psychology, among others. And this book does that in a particularly illuminating way. Your book explores how the legal profession and Russian letters competed for cultural authority in the second half of the 19th century. I was wondering if we could start our discussion by you having uh, you having you tell our listeners what inspired you to, first of all, explore Russian literature in the very creative way that you do, and second, to do this project in particular
2: um uh, well, I began thinking about that book as kind of as a continuation of some previous work that I that I've done uh but this kind of the specific question that uh prompted me was uh to see if there is some kind of relationship between two um, I think, widely recognized stereotypes or generalizations about 19th century Russian culture. So one is that it was a a culture that was characterized by an intense reverence for literature uh, and for the writer. The writer was a figure that was uh, invested with tremendous cultural and moral authority so that's kind of that's one I think widely recognizable stereotype that is uh, familiar to anyone who um, who has studied nineteenth uh, century of literature and culture. But on the other hand, the same educated kind of enlightened public that revered the writer and uh, and literature was. Um, surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, but quite indifferent um, it, it, and uh, even maybe um, disdainful of the value of law. And I so I began this book with that question, whether there is a relationship between these two aspects of 19th century Russian culture, this kind of argument. Uh, 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 intense uh, respect and admiration for for literature, and uh, disregard and and even disdain for law. And then I kind of decided that it was too abstract and maybe a little too grandiose to my taste. And I wanted something more specific, something that I could work up. Um, a little bit of historical context, so that I don't uh, I I don't feel like I'm just making things up. Um, and so I kind of reformulated that initial question, and I made it about the relationship between the writer and the lawyer, because that that was something that seemed to be more manageable manageable and also something that I could work with more responsibly. And so the book, I I think the book does have an answer to that first larger, uh, an answer to that first larger question. But in the end, it became a book about uh, it's it's kind of, it's focalized that question through this kind of more narrow, more specific issue of the relationship between the two professions, the writing profession and the lawyers' profession, so that's I think that's how it started.
1: So uh, I wanted to ask you as well. Um, so that's a, that's a very fascinating intersection, right? Looking at uh, the the relationship right between um, the legal profession and writers, and as you as you explain in, in your book, there were there was this. Um, uh, sort of interaction where there were many writers who had some kind of uh, jurisprudence uh, training or had uh, some some degree of legal training. There were um, uh, lawyers uh, who had um, interest in um, in in producing literature themselves and in shaping Russian letters themselves. So um, when you were looking for, Uh, the sources for this, for for this book to examine this relationship. um, What was your guiding principle and and what kinds of sources did you, um, did you uh, find were most useful for examining this kind of um, this relationship, which um, what, what are, what are some of this uh, sort of, if you take us into the, um, you know, the, the primary source base, um, What what were you working with?
2: So on the side of literature, of course, that's that's an that's an easy answer. I mean, we know that Russian literature uh, is you know has plenty of very negative, very harsh portrayals of law and lawyers and uh, kind of Russian classics, kind of famous writers. uh, You know, produce those very very negative. Uh, accounts, but also less known writers uh, wrote in a very similar vein. So that was that was easy. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Andreev, uh, soltykov Shidrin, uh, lesser known writers like Babarykin has a role to play in my book. Uh, Yeranim uh, 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 Yasinsky as well, but on the side of law, I was uh, especially interested in uh, courtroom speeches. And I, I can tell you later why this was especially important. So I analyzed some, uh, uh, some courtroom, uh, some examples of forensic oratory. I read quite a bit of uh, correspondence between different lawyers. And it it's not it 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 doesn't uh take a lot of place kind of space in my book, but it was very helpful to me to understand how they thought of themselves even privately, not just sort of for public in public-facing discussions, but even privately. And they uh you know, I didn't, I didn't find a lot of discrepancy be- between how they understood themselves, how they s- spoke amongst themselves about the profession and how, uh, and what they said in the kind of more public-facing uh, discussions. Uh, so I read some correspondence. Um, I also read some of their kind of literary criticism and journalism um, that was also helpful to me. Uh, the, the the lectures that they gave in various public settings. I read that um, you know lectures in the juridical St. Of juridical Society, for example, but even things like you know corporate dinner toasts. Uh, I I uh, actually read quite a bit of those. Um, so that was the source base that I relied on as I was uh, especially as as I was writing the first chapter that sort of you know creates the premise for the rest of the book um, where I am arguing that this very new profession of the modern lawyer that was really in its infancy in the 1860s one famous lawyer compared the emergence of this profession to the miracle of spontaneous generation. So they really, that was a profession in search of itself. And um, as I am saying in that first chapter, which becomes the premise for the rest of the book, this new profession of uh, of the trial lawyer fashioned elements of its professional um, image after the paradigm of the Russian writer. And that's, that's sort of that's how the book begins. But to argue that, I I I had to read all that stuff that I just briefly touched on. Um, you know, forensic courtwiri, different lectures, and and in correspondence, and all of that stuff.
1: So I think this is a a good um, seg into perhaps taking us through the book and through the chapters of the book. As you say, right, the first chapter really sets up how you will, how you explore this, um, this relationship, right, between letters and the law. And you have, as you said, in the 1860s, right, with the great reforms, uh, this sudden emergence of the profession of the lawyer, Right of the courtroom lawyer, um, and the as the 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 sort of status of the writer as um, this kind of moral voice as this moral authority had already been established by that time, um, and you have with you know the emergence of uh, the courtroom lawyers them looking for some kind of model right so. Take us perhaps um, through uh, the first chapter, and um, with you know, uh, establishing how how does this phenomenon emerge and and how how does it begin um, with um, with uh, the uh, sort of rapid series of changes that happen between um, you know the the late eighteen fifties and so so this is we have we have a new czar we have the end of the Crimean uh, war. We have uh, all. Of, we have the great reforms and a, a, a series of um, uh, s- profound changes to the social fabric, to the legal fabric of the Russian Empire. Right. Um, so perhaps take us through this first chapter and and set set the scene for um, how how is this beginning? Right. How is this relationship between um, Russian literature and legal culture starting to form in this period.
2: So as we, as we just said the the profession of the modern lawyer as we recognize this profession today did not exist until the 1860s. So when uh, when the court reform or judicial reform you know, people use these two terms interchangeably. When it's introduced, what uh, one of the things that happens, well, the most important thing that happens is that the inquisitorial procedure that was relying on strictly unwritten evidence and that was conducted somewhere in the back rooms of courthouses is now replaced with the open oral uh, contest. Uh, in front of a live jury and live audience, and this, con- and, you know, it's the prosecutor and the defense attorney, uh, which is an entirely new figure uh, in in Russian life that has no uh, precursor uh, m- before the reform, because there was a kind of legal a- a- agents, as it were, but there was no precursor to the defense attorney. So these new kind of legal professionals are duking it out in front of the of the live audience and a jury and moreover the uh, there is a, a a living person in in the dock so all of this created entirely new demands um, created new demands on 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 the lawyer uh, and what the lawyer was expected uh, was expected to do so uh, of course, this new profession could look for models in the West, but for various historical, social, and cultural reasons, uh, those models, however important and, and uh, enlightening they might have been, they really fell short of, what, uh, of, of the sort of image that the Russian lawyer specifically wanted to project uh, and cultivate um, in, uh, at home. So the kind of as as we said, the most influential figure after which the lawyer could could model uh, his professional identity, and I say his because the first cohorts of these uh, you know top echelon of of Russian lawyers were all men. Um, uh, so the kind of the, the the sorts of the sorts of qualities that they wanted to embodying the image that they wanted to project uh, was modeled after the the paradigm of the writers. So they wanted to be they didn't want to be perceived as just legal experts. They didn't want to be perceived as uh, someone who was defending just private m- narrow interest or even state interest. They wanted to be seen as. Um, Public figures as people who were, um, uh, who were interested in kind of questions of great social su- significance. One of the most common phrases that they used was uh, "comprehensive questions of life." Right, comprehensive questions of life. That's that's how they want to be seen. That they care about comprehensive questions of life. Um, not technicians, not not just uh, people who know how to use some narrow uh, set of skills, but defenders of public interest and uh, uh, guardians of morality, and above all, uh, psychologists, kind of, uh, you know, um, people who could understand the and another common phrase that was used often the hidden recesses of of the human soul, uh, that's how they wanted to be seen. Uh, and artists of the artists of the word. So all of these things, you know, psychologists, uh, defenders of morality. Uh, guardians of um, important values, and above all, artists of the world. All of these are pieces of the writer's identity, and this is, this is the sort of image that this new young profession, profession in its infancy, wanted to cultivate and to project to the public. And we should also remember that even though initially the jury trial was was met almost with elation, but very quickly. uh, You know, public uh, opinion soured on on, uh, both the jury trial and on the profession. The lawyers were perceived as um, caring only about winning and money and not about truth and justice. So the end, uh, on top of that, there was, you know, this um image of a narrow specialist was was not something that was celebrated in in russian culture so they kind of they had to they had to uh, address these uh these complaints and that kind of even that furthered their uh, enthusiasm for uh, developing this very different uh Image of, well different from what we now think. I think of the legal profession, but they 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 sort of needed it to establish their credentials and to claim some cultural authority uh, to themselves. And and the writer, uh, you know, uh, uh, for all their reverence. Uh, Right, the, the the lawyer sort of was entering into this masked hidden competition with the writer and the writer responded accordingly right? they were quite irritated by all these suggestions of resemblance between the two professions of some kinship or solidarity with the goals and methods so that Task one of the tasks in the book, uh, I thought for me was to show how uh, how um, laced with the more recognizable type of critique of lawyers, um, right? And then you know they they of course they are they are criticized for immorality and greed uh, and uh, for kind of the the narrowness of the concerns the rigidity and all the the quibbling with with statutes and laws and but laced with all of that uh there is this other intonation there's this other note that i wanted to uncover uh which is that note of irritation that the writer felt uh when um Kind of faced with these suggestions of some sort of camaraderie that they really didn't feel that the that uh, uh, they that, that 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 existed between these two professions. So essentially, they were uh, constantly uh, responding um, with these critical accounts. They were responding to uh, these ongoing suggestions of of some kind of resemblance.
1: It's interesting because there's almost this reluctance to cede the uh, the moral ground and and to cede that role of a uh, kind of public service that writers had already by that time, by you know by the early 1860s had very very clearly established for themselves, and so I wonder, it, it, was there a kind of uh, some an, an element of uh, not wanting to to share that space with this profession, that they looked at with the degree of suspicion, especially because there were these sort of concerns about their um, the sort of motivations of of the lawyers. Right, were they motivated by? questions of uh, public service and and uh, truth and morality or were they <clears throat> motivated by greed perhaps right or uh, yeah, the, the sort of financial incentive right or uh, almost celebrity incentive right um and so from the point of view of the writers what are some of the uh examples that you know how how are they describing this legal profession uh, what are what are some of the things that they are saying at this time?
2: Well, they are, they really, it's interesting because on the one hand, the writer has this enormous cultural prestige and moral authority, and you would think, why would they be bothered by the suggestions of similarity from these upstarts? And yet they really were. Um, I think part of it has to do with just how successful the the lawyers' campaign was for disseminating that professional image. Some of the more famous lawyers of the period really enjoyed the status, not just of celebrities, but of uh, you know artists of the word and these consummate psychologists. And uh, their writers looked with a lot of contempt um, at at these. Uh, at these claims. And they certainly, as much as they wanted to promote, um, I don't know, civic culture, uh, they didn't want the word to be equated with just civic speech of lawyers. Uh, they, they were quite offended by this suggestion that the, their almost sacral word, the word that had that special status, was now put uh, on the same plane uh, as this debased and corrupt word of the lawyer. So a lot of the ire, the writer's ire, was directed at, um, at the lawyer's uh, persona as a greater writer as a you know, public speaker. And of course, there was a very strong anti-rhetorical uh, and anti-oratorical tradition that predated the reform. Belinsky already wrote quite a bit on that issue and was very suspicious of rhetoric and oratory. And even kind of the you know Russian popular culture has all these sayings and proverbs that caution um, with counsel Verbal reticence and caution. So, so oratory and rhetoric were already regarded with suspicion even before the reform. But then these suspicions became confirmed when um, lawyer, when the new lawyer uh, made oratory one of the most important tools uh, in 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 his practice. So. So the the lawyer, on the one hand, the the use of oratory and rhetoric in the courtroom simply confirmed all suspicions about those things. But on the other hand, the lawyer further implicated uh, oratory in his own perceived vices. And those vices were sort of, they were kind of, you know, they they were mutually reinforcing. So they, the the writer portrayed the loquacious lawyer. It was a very kind of stable portrait uh, that you can find in in Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Andreev. It's 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 a certain it's a certain um, uh, kind of uh, uh, what's the word? It's a it's a it's a stable. Uh, configuration of features uh, and mutually reinforcing vices like liberalism and vanity uh, and bad taste uh, and uh, kind of inner hollowness, right? The lawyer is constantly is, is, is uh, portrayed as, as devoid of any uh, inner core, um, just all surface, all glitter, uh, given to kind of this vice of uh, indiscriminate eclecticism. And oratory also is portrayed as, as uh, just sort of, you know, the lawyer's oratory is always, uh, you know, it's almost incoherent. Um, there's just sort of a stream of words and they never mean anything, certainly have absolutely no depth. Uh, and yet... By many in in the culture, uh, this is this is perceived as some sort of artistic use uh, of of language.
1: <clears throat> so that's a really fascinating uh, sort of uh, relationship that is uh, that is forming um, this distrust, suspicion, um, a kind of uh, dismissal of the motivations. Uh, on the part of the legal profession, um, what are so some of you you, you have examples from uh, Dostoevsky. Uh, he f- is uh, he figures prominently right in the text, but um, others as well, right? So so, so the right and others. Um, what are some of the ways in which this this relationship and this depiction of the legal profession makes its way? Right into their works, and how are they being represented? Right, and how are they being so the 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 courtroom lawyers? Right, how are they being um, represented, and how is that changing? Right, in the literature as you go through, right as uh, there are four chapters in the book, as we go through um, the different uh, examples, right? How how are are those depictions? Um, changing or perhaps uh, you know solidifying right coming to a kind of almost caricature right of the courtroom lawyer
2: oh absolutely it is a caricature and I I don't think that in my uh, in the selection of the works that uh uh, I am reading, there is a considerable change uh, in, uh, you know, let's say from Soltikov to Leonid Andreev. Uh, the depiction is pretty stable across all of these decades. Uh, you're right, it is It is a caricature and there are some stable features there. For example, they all they all uh, portrayed as having a very kind of flexible spine. And <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if you remember in in the Brothers Karamazov uh, the the uh, Mitya's uh, defense attorney whose name is Fitykovich is who is modeled in part after the, the very famous lawyer. Vladimir Spasovich, um, He is represented as someone who can somehow make these very strange movements with the back, who has such a remarkable flexibility. And this feature of this flexible back, I, I, I have found it in in a number of uh, in a number of uh, literary depictions. And to me, what this uh, what this uh, Feature. It's not a. It's 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 not a. It's not sort of a. Uh, um, we're not in the presence of a realistic description of of someone's physique. This is a metaphor, and it has a double. Uh, it, it it is doing a double duty. It's uh, I think it on the on the one hand it represents the plasticity of the of the lawyer's principles, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's also. I think it's also about it's kind of it's an indirect reference to that uh, Russian saying that, that 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 the tongue is free of of bones. Uh, essentially that the lawyer can say what whatever uh, w- whatever is convenient uh, whatever is called for by the demands of the case and of the moment. So that that uh, one, Feature, For example, of the lawyer's physique is, is, a, is a very stable presence in several portrayals uh, that I that I have found or something like this kind of unstoppable stream of words, the words that are that are flowing like a river. It's kind of unstoppable, unstoppable. A torrent of, of uh, verbal expression that is essentially devoid of, of um, any meaning and coherence. That's another kind of another another feature of that uh, of that satirical uh, portrait. Um, they are all represented as sort of as d- dandies, uh, but everything that they wear. Is somehow it's it's overly chic and uh, in in poor taste, and that also runs that kind of that that poor taste in their uh, I don't know sartorial choices. They're not innocent. They're reflections of their kind of poor taste in um, in, uh, in 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 their speech. Right, their speech is is given to kind of uh, indiscriminate eclecticism and they can sprinkle their their or their their courtroom performances with all kinds of references that are needless and that that are uh, kind of showy but uh, uh, don't really have much depth so all of this kind of all, all, everything about the physique um, is reflective of some deep moral flaws and and uh,
1: failings. It's an interesting kind of um, it, it, it's an attempt to almost uh, right delegitimize the legal profession by by depicting them in these ways to to signal that they're not really serious, right? That they're not really as um, they're not taking the role of, you know, for example, a kind of moral uh, a moral authority as seriously as a, you know, a writer. Um, you know, and uh, you know, we have examples of Dostoevsky and others in, in the book. but um, all of these uh, depictions, you know, from the, uh, the torrent of words, uh, you know, almost incoherent to how they're described in their sartorial choices, right? As being sort of dandies, it's meant to show that their their interests are in you know on something else that they're not really committed to a a pursuit of truth and a pursuit of kind of what is um, what is in the interest of the public good, even though they are the ones in the courtroom right arguing for you know in, in in these court cases right on on behalf of um the the defendants right so uh, okay. something it's all a performance right? right so there is this element of performance right and, and it almost is this 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 uh, attempt to write write off the legal profession as i'll show i'll show an empty inside right and devoid devoid of real um of a real dedication to the pursuing truth and pursuing what should, you know, in the eyes of the writer be the real questions, the serious questions.
2: Especially if you claim that resemblance to the writer, uh, that you better take these things more seriously rather than put, uh, put on a, on a show of, 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 uh,
0: That's shipstation.com with the code P-O-D.
1: So I wanted to also ask you, this is, a, this is a fascinating relationship and a kind of ambivalence that writers have toward the legal profession. They are almost in unanimous agreement about the kind of caricature features, right, that they, that they um, use to depict lawyers. Um, but at the same time, they're deeply interested and invested in reading about courtroom cases. They are following uh, reporting from courtroom cases in the newspapers, right? Um, they are, are following this quite intently and in some cases getting involved, right? As you have uh, the example of Dostoevsky. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about this, um, this kind of, um, this deep fascination that writers had with um with that following the courtroom cases and um and being very much um, um, involved in just the 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 reporting, right, about all of this
2: well the 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 judicial reform um when it introduced jury trial and opened uh, the doors of the courtroom to the public, it simultaneously. Uh, gave writers a lot of new material to, r- to write about. Um new themes, new problems, um, new situations to explore this new modern institution. It was, of course, was very, I think it was fascinating for the writers. And I'm glad that you uh, that you mentioned real interest, even that Dostoevsky displayed t- towards real, uh, real life cases. And, of course, we know that he got involved in some of them and even uh, helped to bring about different resolution in, a, in one particular case, Um uh, that he writes, uh, that he writes about in his writer's diary, which is this one-man journal that he was uh, publishing or editing, uh, co- contributing to on and off uh, through the eighteen seventies. I'm glad that you said that he had real interest in in law, because. That's not, that's not a commonly held view of Dostoevsky. In fact, many uh, Dostoevsky scholars think, especially in relation to the Brothers Karamazov, that he was much more interested in displacing sort of legal situations onto the plane of morality, religion, and even metaphysics. And of course, he was interested in in, in all, all of those issues. But to me, the Brothers Karamazov is the ultimate... Uh, evidence of his uh, very deep attention and interest specifically in questions of, of law. So uh, traditionally uh, the typical reading of the brothers Karamazov uh, goes along something along uh, something something like that. Um, as we know meet. Karamazov, who is one of the novel's main protagonists, is on trial for the crime that he hasn't committed and it's a terrible crime of patricide. He is found guilty uh, of this crime and he is uh, sentenced to an essentially unsurvivable punishment of many years of hard labor somewhere in some Siberian prison. But for many readers of Dostoevsky, uh, this uh, this uh, judicial era, which, by the way, is the title of this last section of of the novel, this judicial era is uh, is uh, essentially it's just a vehicle for the for the triumph of higher justice, right? So even though the the uh, jury delivers this erroneous verdict. It's 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 uh, nevertheless, the endorses this erroneous verdict because it becomes you know it becomes this vehicle for higher truth and 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 higher justice. So as this argument goes, the is not really interested in Mitya's, you know, formal innocence or. But because he's is not interested in, in in legal issues or facts, uh, as it were. Uh, what what he kind of endorses about this this conviction is that is that Nietzsche somehow, in, yes, he might be uh, innocent in the eyes of the law, but he is guilty in the eyes of God, and he deserves this suffering and because you know he contemplated this thought of patricide even though he never carried it out his kind of moral disorderliness and hideousness are enough for him to deserve this that's not how I read this novel I think Dostoevsky cared very very deeply about um, writing accurately and authentically about um, specifically in the Brothers Karamazov uh, uh, writing uh, accurately about Russian uh, courtroom and Russian courtroom culture. So it's not just a critique of Western uh, legal process, it's also a critique of how uh, this process realized itself in the cultural environment of or specifically Russian courtroom so to me you know the last book of the brothers karamazov is a critique at least as much of a critique of the of the russian legal uh, uh, courtroom culture as it is of western law and uh, you know all this orientation on literary models and um you know, self defining analogies with literature and all these aspirations to air questions of public significance and appeals to higher justice, which very often lawyers um, employed to sidestep inconvenient facts. Um, all of this, I think, is quite troubling to to the um, So yes, higher truth was a central category of his own poetics, and it was central to artistic expression in in general. But lawyers, in his eyes, are not artists, so they have no business to claim that uh, that. Uh, They they have no business to appeal to higher justice or to higher law. In their hands, it's just a tool of demagoguery. So, to me, the judicial era, that last book of the Brothers Karamazov, is not Dostoevsky's endorsement of the judicial, of, of, of the erroneous verdict in Mitya's trial, but rather it is a very careful examination of how judicial errors happen Uh, and you know he had uh, an an interest in judicial errors at least since his return from Siberia in the early 1860s already in Time and Epoch those two journals that he published with his uh, brother Mikhail already there we see plenty of evidence that judicial errors these kind of faulty verdicts were on Dostoevsky's mind. Uh, there are several uh, fiction and non-fiction works that he included in Time and Epoch that feature specifically accounts, or often very detailed accounts, of um, a trial involving or ending uh, in a faulty verdict. Um, so he, he wasn't in, in, you know, he touched on this in Notes from the* notes uh, from the house of the dead and even very very lightly but still there is a reference to this in crime and punishment but the most sustained and careful examination of kind of what goes into a faulty verdict happens I think in 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 the brothers in the brothers Kramazov. So I and and especially he is concerned with the role that narrative management of facts plays in uh, in these faulty verdicts, and he's not alone. Other writers, like Soltakov, is writing on on this too, and lawyers and journalists. It's it's a big topic of discussion in the sixties and seventies. You know what happens when a jury arrives at 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 a mistaken verdict and how exactly it happens. Um, And of course, for writers in particular, the most interesting piece uh, in this is that one can really create equally compelling stories from the same field of facts, right? So you can can sort of, you can write um, accounts of... um, Equal force, equal power, stringing the, the 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 same facts in a different way, and that of course has to be very concerning to to a writer especially. So yes, the bottom line is that both thematically and formally, the brothers Karamazov um, also points to a kind of this fundamental dissimilarity between uh, the novel and the courtroom, the writer and the lawyer, uh, and the regimes of truth and standards of truth in, in literature and in law. You know, so what's, what, is, what is okay in, in a novel is not really okay in the courtroom because the consequences are quite different, right? I mean, these legal decisions uh, have life-altering uh, consequences, and I do think that the took that quite seriously.
1: I mean, even just the fact that he, at at, at least on one occasion, had had a direct role right in in uh, having having a a retrial right and and having a very different outcome come about because he was invested in this kind of uh, the. Uh, with with truth and um, you know having the correct verdict come out as as he understood it, um, and he's very much involved in in the in the actual playing out of the of these cases. Uh, he's following them, and it, it, as you said, it, you know it, it makes its way into his his works, um, you know, to different to different degrees. But most clearly, right, it it, it is in the Brothers Karamazov with. With this depiction um, of the character of Mita, um, so th- that's from the from the you know the writer's side. But I wanted to ask you as well about you know you have this um, the source base for the book uh, in the courtroom uh, transcripts, the speeches, the uh, the forensics, uh, the forensic oratory, as you say, the um, the the correspondence of the lawyers themselves and how they're writing about their profession, right? And how they understand themselves and their role in society. Um, and as you say, they're basing this image on the role of the writer, because by the time that this new profession is um, is beginning in <clears throat> the 1860s, um, that the role of the writer is the sort of the most direct moral authority that they can look to for, to, to fashion their own image. Right. And, and so we have this um, ambivalence on the part of writers, this, this uh, critique about how, how, you know, what are the motivations of, of the lawyers and, um, and this kind of suspicion about their claims to higher truth. But what about, the lawyers themselves, right? And in the examples that you've come across, how did they understand um, themselves in relation to writers, you know in this Russian um, uh, cultural sphere in this Russian language cultural sphere? Um, did they see themselves as um, as uh, competitors? Did they see themselves as kind of potential, could, would be allies in a kind of pursuit of a common goal. Um, how, how did they frame their own work, right? And how did they think of themselves as, as this new profession? And what does it mean to them to be, um, to be this, uh, you know, part of this new, um, this, this new social um, actor, right. In, in the legal culture and, and in the social fabric of, you um, of the Russian Empire.
2: Well, I I think they were quite earnest in their desire to project that image. I don't think it was just a, 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 some sort of pragmatic decision. They did they did want to see themselves in those in those ways. Um, they you know they they wanted they wanted to have their own space and that was the space of the courtroom. but within that space, they did certainly the elite lawyer, the kind of the upper echelon lawyer that we, we we know that we know most about. those lawyers did want to see themselves as something like a kind of surrogate of the writer in that particular public, space was there some kind of some sense of competition there i think there was but they were very very careful about um kind of overstepping they 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 understood very well that this was not as it were a, a fair competition right that they were newcomers to public life and they they really they they would have loved nothing more than some sort of um, expression of solidarity and camaraderie from the writer. They didn't get that. But I I think many of them would have been thrilled to have it. Once in a while um, and almost always in very narrow professional settings you could see how that sense of, uh, upfront, um, erupts, uh, for example, so uh, Spasovich, the lawyer that we already mentioned a couple of times today, um, he says something like what something like well our our realist literature is so realistic it can't even see beyond its own nose some some swipe like that but those things were rather sporadic and more importantly they were always reserved for some professional setting they never aired this kind of disappointment or um, you know irritation uh, at the at the writer who was not reciprocating any of these kind of in any, any, any of, of the lawyers enthusiasm um they never aired that in uh, in you know in some widely read periodical for example which was the case say in england um there was something of a similar relationship for a while um, in the 1840s, 1850s in England, and their lawyers felt perfectly free to abrade writers for critiquing uh, law uh, and for kind of for critiquing what they knew very little about from the standpoint of lawyers, and they would they felt perfectly free to. Uh, kind of admonish uh, even very famous writers on the pages of uh, periodic widely read uh, periodicals. That was not the case in in Russia, and that's just that's just uh, another reminder that there was a, a considerable imbalance in the um, stature of these two professions. So what what writers felt they could do in spades lawyers couldn't really reciprocate at all and so i think there was a latent sense of competition as well on the part of the lawyers um, and and uh, you know and, and then writers felt i mean they kind of they perceived even um, expressions of reverence as uh as uh oh, just manifestation of the lawyers' corruption. And um, um, I don't know what word to use, sort of uh, expansiveness. Uh, they didn't really value these uh, effusions, um, but saw them as just another evidence of their presumptuousness. Maybe that's the word.
1: And certainly, as you say, you know, the there was this significant imbalance, especially when you know you're looking at the popular periodical press, and there, the legal profession does not really make an an attempt to you know swipe at the at 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 authors at writers, but you have the reverse with. uh, this critique of the legal of the legal profession and lawyers, and all the ways in which they're not being authentic, right? That this is sort of um, a falsity to them. That they're uh, not um, n- not genuinely uh, interested in questions of higher truth. That it's all a kind of um, empty performance, right? Um, and on the pages of the popular periodical press, there is this incredible imbalance where uh, the writers are very much the dominant voice um, and their point of view is coming across. That is what people are reading. And so that is the kind of um, the, it, it speaks to the degree of, of, of uh, public influence, right? That it's precisely in the periodical press that, and this and the uh, the most popularly read um, journals, especially that this suspicion of the legal profession is coming across. So you write um, you write in your conclusion that um, quote Russian nineteenth century classics negative representation of law contributed. To delegitimating the legal institutions and relations of the old regime and left an indelible mark on the Russian cultural imaginary for generations to come. Um, and certainly, right, in the when you when you read through the the popular periodical press of the second half of the 19th century, right, that is the that is the dominant narrative. Um, and so you also write in the conclusion that quote, how exactly this literature might have influenced Soviet and even post-Soviet attitudes toward law is a question still awaiting its researcher. Um, end quote. But perhaps uh, I could ask you to sketch out some of your preliminary thoughts on this and this kind of uh, uh, outsize influence that the um, that Russian literature had in creating these depictions of the law, legal institutions, the profession of the lawyer, um, and uh, how how that has echoes into the 20th century.
2: Well, I I mean, apart from uh, delegitimating profession, the the legal profession in in those uh, portrayals uh, that we already discussed, there was another process that I think had an adverse uh, impact on the on the kind of on the state of Russian legal consciousness, and that was uh, that was the following. Um, you know, the the fact that the lawyer was um, kind of thirsting for that particular professional identity had profound implications for how law in general was practiced how those lawyers understood their duties how they thought about legal education how they um how they conceived of uh, professional ethics and uh and how they uh, uh how they constructed the uh, the culture of the courtroom. And in that last, uh, uh, in that latter regard, you know, the one uh, element of uh, the Russian courtroom that was uh, kind of in line with the, with the portrait that the lawyer was trying to project was it's, its incredible hyper-moralization, right? So the lawyer really uh, was, you know, was if, if, if the lawyer, is mostly interested in projecting that uh, that image of uh, the profession as caring for morality and public good and uh, advancing common interest, rather than uh, more uh, I don't know technical or more properly legal questions. Then who is going to socialize the public uh, into into the appreciation of the of the importance of law as such, uh, who is gonna kind of raise the level of of public legal consciousness, if even, lawyer, if even lawyers are not all that interested in, in, in any of that. Um, so there was this sort of great, I think, damage, I don't know, maybe it's too strong a word, but something like that, that this kind of outsize influence of Russian literature had on certainly the the legal world but even maybe on the on civil society in general when literature exerts just so much influence of our over how um, all these you know different um, Different professions think of themselves, that may not be such a good thing. But uh, speaking of hypermoralization specifically, I think that was one element that carried over from the pre revolutionary period into the post revolutionary period. Because there's quite a bit of discussion among historians whether the revolution was. This kind of you know radical rupture between the two periods, or whether there's some some there are some lines of continuity between them, and I think this this particular element of just kind of you know uh, hyper moralistic courtroom, that was a, a vector of continuity connecting the two periods because Soviet justice was. Um, was characterized by the same kind of attitudes uh, or similar attitudes uh, except that they uh, kind of foreground the dangers that were always lurking in the in the pre-revolutionary uh, uh, courtroom you know those judgments by conscience um, that were that are usually viewed as As uh, kind of vehicles of more lenient, humanistic uh, jurisprudence, because you know, you know, judgments by conscience are not supposed to be. um, They're supposed to be sort of in, in, in. intuitive, uh, not constrained by any, uh, you know, f- formal obstacles uh, and therefore more flexible and therefore more merciful as this narrative goes, but what uh, what post-revolutionary justice shows that those instinctive uh, judgments could be very, you know, bloody and not at all, uh, not at all lenient. Uh, So in the kind of in the backward light of the revolution, that career of conscience, uh, judging by conscience appears to us in a very, very dark, in a very dark light. And incidentally, I would also add, that uh, this whole business of judging by conscience was very helpful to defense attorneys in pre-revolutionary courtrooms. And they mobilized that rhetoric very liberally when it was convenient. But at the same time, many of these attorneys understood very clearly the dark potential of that uh, of that instinctive. Uh, justice so when Alexandrov uh, was uh, the defender, he you know he was the defender of Vera Zasulich probably one of the most famous trials of the uh, of the century it was a political trial she was a uh, 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 she was a, a, a political criminal she tried to assassinate um, the governor of St. Petersburg so when he was a, when, when he was defending her uh, he was appealing as well as the the president of the court, another famous uh, another famous lawyer, Anatoly Kuni, they were appealing to um, to the to the lawyer's uh, conscience. Right, sidestep the, you know, the clear fact that she was actually, you know, she actually shot at that at, at of the, the governor of St. Petersburg. Forget that judge, judge, kind of ju- judge from your instinct, uh, you know, find her, find her innocent, which the jury in the end did. But just a year later, when uh, Alexandrov was trying—I uh, mean, was defending a group of Jews in a blood libel case—he understood very clearly that he couldn't appeal to the Christian no, to the Christian jury's uh, instinct for justice because he knew what it would spell uh, for his uh, Jewish clients in the outskirts of, of the empire. So that whole business with conscience and kind of, you know, we sometimes fetishize that concept, you know, judging by conscience, because we think that it's some sort of guarantee of more humanistic and lenient jurisprudence. It really isn't that. Uh, it depends on how it's it's uh, it's it's practiced, and it it holds tremendous dangers to especially minority communities, right? Conscience is supposed to be a property of just orthodox um, Christianity, right? Everyone else is more or less excluded from access to that. So, uh, and I think the revolution and revolutionary conscience uh, and its close relative revolutionary consciousness um, highlight for us kind of in a, in, a, in a backward illumination, just how dangerous uh, appeals to conscience can be.
1: I think you've uh, mapped out some incredibly important areas for further research. Um, and as you say, you know, these are questions that certainly do require um, uh Further, further examination and 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 truly because they they illuminate so many aspects right of both the the pre and post revolutionary uh, behavior um, and um, I think um, you know as you say right those are those are questions awaiting further research but um, before uh, we end could you perhaps tell us what projects you're currently working on um right now uh, i am actually right now reading and
2: their files on um a, a jewish poet whose name was david hofstein um it's a fascinating and heartbreaking read and um i i i, I am interested in continuing this line research but kind of moving more into the soviet period perhaps i'm very interested in this notion of higher truth and how um, that might have uh, uh, might have um, impacted various professions, uh, not just not just the legal profession, but also um, historians and uh, literary scholars. But in general, I am sort of I'm I wonder if there is something. Uh, to be said about that notion of higher truth as a precursor to the erosion of truth in our own time. Um, There's just something very, I think, pernicious and uh, fundamentally damaging in that concept of higher truth that was very often mobilized to simply sidestep um, factual empirical truths on the ground and to... um, anyway and that's so that's that's another project maybe it's the same project I'm not sure yet but i am I am interested in continuing some of this uh, some of these themes
1: and certainly your explorations uh into 19th century legal and literary culture shed uh, a lot of light right uh, into what is going on with 20th century soviet and and Perhaps even post-Soviet conceptions, right? As you say, this uh, question of post-post truth, right, and the sort of dis- dismantling of that concept as as um, you know uh, is how uh, ha- how that works, um, you know, in in our day as well.
2: Well, thank you very much for saying it because I you know, it, it gives me hope that it's not just in my imagination. I think there are some vectors of, of continuity here from those those really uh, opportunistic appeals, often opportunistic appeals to higher truths, to the, the it just it, they just make truth so vulnerable to all kinds of uh, to to just vulnerable to general erosion. Um, and we are really witnesses to what that can do to public life.
1: And I think because you explore these questions, your your work in general and and this book in particular, they they speak to a very broad audience. And so I think this work and and I wanted to ask you as well about your your intended audience, but the way I see it is it's um, it's something that, presents a kind of major contribution far outside the realm of literary studies.
2: Well, again, it's very kind of you to say, and I I, I hope that it will have a couple of things to say, maybe to Russian historians, uh, maybe to scholars of law and literature, um, and as you mentioned, literary scholars. But I, I just thought that to understand this, uh, this particular issue that was central uh, in that book, I had to try and approach it from different disciplinary perspectives. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it, that it found some resonance in a in a historian such as yourself.
1: Certainly. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely positive that I am uh, far from the only one. Well, um, your, your current projects uh, sound absolutely Uh, fascinating. Um, And uh, I wanted to um, thank you, Anna, so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, Best of luck with your research going forward. Thank you so much, Lisa. It was a pleasure.
2: Thank you for the invitation, for the conversation.
1: Um, My pleasure as well. Um, Thank you for being here. And to our listeners, um, thank you for listening to this episode. And be sure to check out The Letters and the Law, Legal and Literary Culture in Late Imperial Russia, wherever excellent books are sold. Um, So this has been New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time.